Well, if that's what Revelation is about, then the next question is going to be, well, what would be the most accurate unveiling, uh, the most complete unveiling of the truth about God that uh, has ever happened? And the answer clearly has to be Jesus Christ. He's the fullest form of revelation uh, of God. And that in no way is to say anything negative about any other form of revelation, but it's only to recognize that if the topic is, what is it that reveals God? Well, nothing could reveal God better than God himself. And so that's why Jesus is the height of revelation. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. The Apostle Paul once wrote to Timothy in his second letter, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, this famous passage penned by the Apostle Paul not only tells us about the sufficiency of God's Word, the sufficiency of Scripture for the church, but it also says something about the inspiration of Scripture. The fact that uh, the the text, the the Bible that uh, we read in our churches today, uh, this is not only uh, from God, but it is breathed out by God. This is the doctrine of inspiration, as theologians have called it, and it is central to our doctrine of Scripture, I would even go further and say that apart from the doctrine of inspiration, we actually do not have a a foundation for the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, I am pleased to have with me today John Feinberg, who is the department chair and professor of biblical and systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You may know him from his many books. Uh, He has written, for example, on the doctrine of God. His book, No One Like Him, is uh, is a major work on theology proper. He's also written... Uh, books in a, in a number of other areas as well. The Many Faces of Evil, where he tackles the problem of evil, or his book on ethics, Ethics for a Brave New World. But his most recent book, and one that is equal in size in some ways to his book on the doctrine of God, his most recent book is called Light in a Dark Place, The Doctrine of Scripture. And this is in the Foundations of Evangelical Theology series, which he himself self-edits. John, it is uh, a pleasure to have you on the Credo Podcast. Well, thank you so much. I count it a real privilege to do this. So, John, in your work, you uh, frame your entire doctrine of Scripture through this imagery of light, and you do this if someone was to look at the table of contents, for example, each and every chapter, whether it's on inspiration, uh, inerrancy, clarity, sufficiency— 
uh, you introduce each of those attributes through this biblical imagery of light. Why, why did you choose this uh, biblical image in particular to frame your understanding of the Bible? Well, I did so because it is uh, an image that Scripture uses in regard to itself. It actually comes from Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, at the end of that chapter, uh, verses 19 through 21, Peter uh, sets forth the doctrine of inspiration, but before he gets to that, uh, he tells his readers that he's been an eyewitness to the majesty uh, of Christ and the grandeur of Christ, so they should uh, trust what he is saying. But even more than his own eyewitness testimony is that they have Scripture, and that is even more certain than anything he could say by way of eyewitness testimony. And he tells his readers that Scripture is like a light in a dark place. And uh, because it uh, has that characteristic and functions that way, they should pay close attention to it. Now, in your section on the inspiration of Scripture, you use this this imagery of light, as you've mentioned from Second Peter 1, and uh, you give us eight theses that uh, very clearly lay out the uh, an evangelical understanding of inspiration. And I want to work through many of these and just give you the opportunity to tell our listeners what each means and why you chose these eight in particular. Uh, and theses, uh, the, the, fir- the very first one, you say God uh, is, is the very source of Scripture. And then in the second thesis, you then say the product is God's Word. Uh, maybe you could describe what you mean by both of those. Okay, well, perhaps if we could step back for just a moment, I can... Uh, explain the connection of these eight theses to the rest of the book. In the two previous chapters to the one we're talking about, I have gone through and uh, given a detailed interpretation of the main uh, scripture passages on which the doctrine of inspiration is, is founded, and then also discussed a number of the secondary ones. Well, having uh, discussed this by doing exegesis of individual passages, uh, but not having drawn together the teaching of all of those passages, I then thought what would really be good, uh, since there are a number of verses that you uh, have to cover uh, in dealing with this doctrine, that it might be very good in the next chapter, which is the one we're talking about, to summarize in a number of theses exactly what the scripture text that uh, we've interpreted amount to. And um, so I, I did not put this in um, a biblical order. By that I mean I didn't go to the thought that shows up first in scripture and then second and so on and so forth, but rather... Uh, I thought the best thing to do is to progress logically, and uh, the first thing, most fundamental, is where in the world does Scripture come from? And Scripture makes uh, a point, especially Peter in Second Peter 1,
other's right uh, is not something that uh, they went out and did some research about it, and then they wrote up their uh, findings. It is uh, not something that originated with them. Uh, it actually originated with God, and uh, I think you can get the impression from what Peter is saying that um, if God had not revealed this to them, uh, there's probably no way that they would have ever come up with what we find in Scripture. And I, I don't mean um, that a lot of the factual and historical statements they never would have come up with, but especially when we get to the doctrinal themes, practical themes, um, things of that sort, these are not things that came out of their own mind. And uh, God is the ultimate source, but God didn't do the writing of Scripture. He used human beings uh, to uh, write down what he wanted them to write. And uh, the superintending of God uh, upon the biblical writers is what we're referring to uh, in part when we talk about inspiration, and uh, yet uh, God was not dictating to them the very words of Scripture, but uh, he was revealing to them uh, the concept the, that he wanted to uh, discuss, and Scripture also shows that his guidance, his superintendence, uh, was more than just giving them a general assignment to go write up what they thought about a topic, but rather that as they wrote, he was involved at every step of the way. Uh, if he didn't like the words that they were using, uh, he saw to it, we're not told exactly how, but uh, he saw to it that they uh, didn't use those words, but rather used the very words that he wanted them uh, to use in articulating the theme. And so the result of this is that the writers actually use their own personalities, their own vocabulary, their own interests, but all of that was so guided by the Lord that um, they didn't put down everything they knew or everything they were thinking. They put down the things that God wanted them to say and uh, they said it in ways that he was fully in agreement with. Now, what you're describing here, uh, it reflects what Peter says, and you've referenced this already, Second Peter one twenty one, where he says, you know, if, if Paul to Timothy is describing this inspiration event as, as the fact that uh, Scripture is breathed out by God, you know, that captures the, the source uh, God being the source uh, from which we receive Scripture. Peter, on the other hand, uh, tells us, he, he starts to get into some Trinitarian language here to say that uh, these, uh, here he's referring to to prophecy and, and the prophets, and he says, these men, they spoke from God, so there's your source, but then he says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and uh, there we start to see how the triune God uh, is, is, like you've mentioned, is not just uh, dictating uh, words to say a secretary, but is actually working in and through and among 
these uh, human authors. Now, in your third thesis, you also then take a next step and you say all Scripture is God's Word. You make a fascinating observation, which I think is pivotal, and and it's this. uh, When uh, those in the early church are, are receiving and even recognizing Scripture for what it is, uh, you talk about how uh, they are they are recognizing which books are canonical. They are not, uh, rather, on the other hand, they're not uh, looking at different books and saying, well, th- they're different in, in degree, as if uh, one book of the Bible is more inspired than another book. Uh, would you tell us why right. is that? I mean, it's a fine, it, it may seem like a small distinction, uh, a small theological distinction to make, but why is it so critical? Well, it's critical uh, in several respects. The, the most fundamental is that we want to be as precise as possible about what inspiration means. And inspiration means more than just a divine and a human author were involved in the process somehow. Uh, it specifies thankfully, because Scripture goes into some detail, as to the part that uh, both God and the human author uh, played in the process. Not necessarily every single thing about the process, but the basics, so that we find that God's part was, first of all, uh, he is source of Scripture, that is, its ideas, its wording, uh, its content comes from him, he uh, reveals it to the biblical authors, uh, and as you read Scripture, you can see that there are various ways. Uh, some things were revealed in direct speech to them, some things were revealed through visions or dreams, and there were other means of God revealing what he wanted uh, his um, the, the writers to say, but then... Um, there were certain things that he revealed to them that he wanted them to write down so that they would not only have a record of it, but so that it would be available for everybody else uh, in uh, the day it was written and from then on. And it's at the point that uh, the biblical writers took pen to write that God uh, guides them He superintends in the sense that he's guiding what what they're thinking, how they're saying it, so that uh, he's not dictating to them, but he is making sure that they are are writing about the topics that he wants them to write, that they're saying about those topics what he wants them to say, and that uh, they are saying it in the kind of language which makes precisely the point that God wants to make. Uh, As a result of this, this is why the biblical writers say that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, He didn't himself take a pen and uh, tablet or papyrus to write, uh, but uh, it all, the content does come from him uh, and the motivation to write it but that didn't mean that the biblical writers were passive secretaries. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the Holy Spirit 
taught the writers how to combine just the uh, appropriate theological concept with the words to express them. Now, we might say, now how did the Holy Spirit teach them that? Did he drop cue cards from heaven uh, to give them a clue? Or uh, when they started to write, if they wrote the wrong word, did he paralyze their hands? Um, well, we're really not told exactly how the Holy Spirit did that. We're only told that he was involved in that way. But then, whatever that teaching involved, the biblical writers took the teaching and they used it to articulate just exactly what God wanted to say in the precise words that God wanted uh, to say as well. And the point about the third thesis is that what we're saying uh, relates to every single word, every single sentence of Scripture, not just to certain portions, uh, but to all of it. So there's no room, for example, to, to think that uh, certain parts of Scripture are inspired to a greater or a lesser degree than other parts. Uh, to be inspired at all means they are what God has said and has uh, made sure that it's been passed into a written form. So it, it either makes it into that form or it doesn't make it at all. Inspiration, then, is uh, either an all or a nothing thing. You can't talk about uh, the Bible being partially inspired but partially not, or a certain part more inspired than another part. We've been talking to John Feinberg about the inspiration of Scripture, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We're back from our break and ready to continue our conversation with John Feinberg on the ins and outs of the inspiration of Scripture. To our listeners, you may want to consult uh, John's fourth, fifth, and sixth theses. Uh, For example, in his fourth thesis, he says Scripture was also written by human authors using uh, human language. And then in his fifth uh, thesis, he says Scripture was written with dual authorship, divine and human, but in a way that maintained the integrity of both authors. And then in his, uh, in his sixth thesis, he says inspiration extends to the very words of Scripture, not just the ideas. Uh, you have, John, you've really described all three of those in, in what you've said. Would you say that uh, an appropriate theological term that can help us think through uh, all three of those would be the word concursive uh, or, or maybe 
we could look to, say, uh, the doctrine of providence to uh, capture this idea of this concursive operation between God and, uh, in, in our case here, the, the human author to describe this inspiration event? Yes, I think that both of those terms are correct, that uh, the more general thought is that God in his providence superintended the whole writing uh, of Scripture, the whole revealing of it, and then the writing of it uh, and passing it on. Uh, And then when you talk about more specifically uh, what God and what the human author did, to produce the actual writing, that's where the term concursive, uh, usually it's, it's that concursive inspiration, and what that means is to write together uh, the, the book that we know as the Bible. Now, obviously, the role that God played in uh, this process of concursive inspiration is not exactly the same role that the human author played, but their two actions work together uh, in harmony to produce this book. Now, in Thesis 7, you make a fascinating uh, claim. You say Scripture contains many forms of revelation and is one form itself. And, And I couldn't agree with you more there because... Uh, when we talk about revelation in Scripture, we need to understand that Scripture is uh, one form in, in which God has revealed himself, though, of course, there, there are other forms as well, whether in the Old Testament, whether it's a theophany, or, or perhaps even more broadly in systematic categories, the difference between general revelation in, in, uh, in nature and human conscious, in contrast to special revelation. I think that this point is, uh, has a lot of relevance today because, and you make this uh, the case for this yourself, uh, sometimes evangelicals, in their response to say someone like Karl Barth or or the neo orthodox uh, movement as as a whole, have have really neglected this uh, this thesis, this seventh thesis of yours, because uh, Barth will argue that no, it's 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 not about propositions. Instead, uh, where is revelation found? It's it's Christ. It's in the it's in a person, uh, and, and so we're not to look to Scripture as if it's inherently revelation, uh, but it more or less becomes the Word of God as it's as it's then proclaimed. Now. You make the argument that uh, Bart actually has a point in in the sense that Christ too, and, and maybe we could say uh, when we look at biblical theology, Christ Himself is is the very fulfillment of of everything God said before, and He Himself is revelation. You think of uh, John one, where He is described as the Word, uh, who is who who was both with the Father and and. Uh, uh, who, who both was with God and and was God, and uh, Bart certainly stresses that, uh, demonstrating that that Christ comes as the Word, who who is the revelation of God, and yet at the same time, uh, as you as you sort of correct that uh, overreaction, at the same time you also demonstrate that well, it's it's not as true as that may be. It's not enough to it, we can't just stop there. It's not enough to, simply to say the Bible is a witness. 
Uh, it's actually much more. The, the, the Bible doesn't just witness to revelation. The Bible itself is revelatory. Could you talk about uh, why it's so crucial? As much as we might agree with Bart that, yes, Christ is the revelation from God, why is it so crucial to say, but the Bible is not merely a witness? It is a witness, but it's not merely a witness. It actually is the Word of God itself. Yes. Well, there are several things that I want to say. Uh, I think the most fundamental point to make is uh, to clarify what we mean when we say uh, that we're talking about revelation and that the Bible is revelation. To reveal something in the scriptural sense uh, of revelation means to unveil or uncover something that was hidden. And as you read through scripture, it's clear that God has used many different ways of revealing or uncovering truth about himself. That's, that's the most fundamental thing that he is revealing, uh, truth of any and all sorts about himself. Well, if that's what Revelation is about, then the next question is going to be, well, what would be the most accurate unveiling, uh, the most complete unveiling of the truth about God that uh, has ever happened? And the answer clearly has to be Jesus Christ. He's the fullest form of revelation uh, of God. And that in no way is to say anything negative about any other form of revelation, but it's only to recognize that if the topic is, what is it that reveals God? Well, nothing could reveal God better than God himself. And so that's why Jesus is the height of revelation. As to Karl Barth, we need to understand the context in which he's writing. Um, he's writing in, um, well, by the end of his, his life in the 20th century, and by uh, this point in history, and uh, much earlier than, than this, uh, all the higher critical uh, attacks on Scripture had taken their toll, and uh, generally within liberal theology, uh, and art uh, is neo-Orthodox in his theology, that's one form of liberal theology, the going assumption was that Scripture has errors in it. And if it has errors in it, well, then it can't be the Word of God, because if God says something uh, or does something, it would have to be perfect, it would have to be true. And people who agreed with Bart would say, well, you just read Scripture and you can find various errors in it. So how can we say that the Bible is the very Word of God? If it is, and there are mistakes in it, then that means God is mistaken. Well, in order to avoid implicating God in some kind of error, uh, Bart and other thinkers of his, of his day and of his time said, well, you know, uh, I think that evangelical Christianity has been mistaken. They have thought that Scripture is revelation when, in fact, uh, the highest form of revelation, in fact, the only form of revelation, is God himself, and in particular, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, as he comes to us personally, uh, Bart and his colleagues would say, in a nonverbal encounter. 
And um, uh, now you say, well, okay, they come. Christ comes in a nonverbal encounter, but now what does he say? Well, not something in language per se, because again, you to make the claim that um, uh, God is revealing himself in language, the language is correct, and then that would implicate God in error. If you say revelation has nothing to do with language, so the Bible can't be revelation, for example, but revelation is Jesus Christ himself, uh, well, a person is not going to have uh, some sort of linguistic uh, factual error. So they felt, uh, you know, we don't have to try to defend the Bible as God's revelation, uh, despite the fact that they, they thought it included error. Um, we'll just say that the true revelation is God himself and the person of Christ. Well, then what does this do to the Bible? Well, the Bible, according to Bart and his colleagues, is not revelation, but it is a witness to many times when God revealed himself in one way or another to various people. And uh, Bart and his associates don't speculate about whether those witnesses, those reports of times that God uh, encountered people, are correct or incorrect. They just assume they're probably correct. But you see, there there isn't much of anything that uh, uh, rests on the idea that the Bible is just a record of times when God encountered people, but it's not revelation itself. It's not what God said. Well, then what, what is revelation? Uh, well, revelation is Jesus Christ. Well, what does Jesus Christ say, and where could we find it? Well, not in Scripture or anywhere else. Uh, if you have encountered Christ, the thought was, you will just know it, uh, and even without him saying anything to you, you will definitely know uh, what he wants to communicate. So there was a motivation behind this. Uh, people like Bart and his colleagues had uh, followed the results of higher criticism over the previous centuries, that had uh, made it, in their thinking, impossible to believe in an errant Bible. Uh, they didn't want to throw Scripture out entirely, uh, but if you couldn't depend on Scripture to tell you the truth, uh, the question was, do you want to say we have no revelation from God? Well, they didn't want to go that far. They did believe that God can reveal himself, but he does it in his own person. Uh, in a nonverbal encounter with uh, the individual uh, believer, or it could happen with the non-believer. That way, you can avoid having to defend the Bible as totally truthful. Uh, you can admit uh, what they thought, namely that it has errors, but nonetheless, it still is useful because it is the most complete and the most accurate witness to times when God did reveal himself to individuals. Now, one popular way of trying to capture uh, inspiration and and this dual authorship or, or 
uh, dual characteristics, divine and human, has been to uh, appeal to the hypostatic union, to the incarnation itself. So we're, you know, we, we've been talking about Bart and, and his understanding of uh, Christ, and you've provided a very helpful critique demonstrating uh, in what ways that falls short. Now, when we look to, if we transition from Bart to, say, someone uh, more recently like Peter Enns, uh, we see Enns in his book Inspiration and Incarnation. He will make a very strong appeal to the incarnation to say, well, well, here you have an analogy uh, that is is uh, fitting for Scripture itself. Uh, for example, he writes he writes this at one point. He says, "This way of thinking of Christ is analogous to thinking about the Bible in the same way that Jesus is that Jesus must be both God and human. The Bible also." Uh, the Bible is also a divine and human book. Although Jesus was God with us, he still completely assumed the cultural trappings of the world in which he lived. In fact, this is what is implied in God with us. And from here, ends will then draw the conclusion that so, so is this the case with the Bible. Since it has human authors, it too is characterized by these cultural trappings. And for ends, uh, he goes so far as to, to, to push that human aspect to say, well, then there, there must be uh, a, a fallible side to the scriptures as well. And interestingly enough, he's using the, the person of Christ uh, to come to that conclusion. John, how would you, uh, maybe just two things here. First of all, is this uh, analogy uh, between the hypostatic union and the, this um, inspiration, uh, the way you've described it, uh, is that a, a fitting analogy? And uh, as we look at that type of analogy, are there ways in which, uh, whether it's N's particular use of it or, or others, are there ways in which the analogy starts to crumble? Well, yes. This, uh, I think uh, N's has, has gone to an awful lot of effort uh, to show that there is a connection between the two natures of Christ and the two natures of Scripture, human and divine, and to argue that if uh, if Christ has two natures and Scripture has two natures, and we believe that both of them uh, have a connection to God, well then maybe whatever we want to say about one of them, we should say about the other. So... Um, uh, I think the first thing to note is that nowhere in Scripture does Scripture itself draw this analogy. And um, I don't think Enns himself in his book says that Scripture is drawing the analogy, uh, but he thinks it's an appropriate analogy to, to make. Uh, but it's not something that Scripture itself draws out. I think it could. Um, but it, it doesn't. Then the, the focus of uh, what he wants to say is to uh, ultimately say that Jesus had a human side which had limitations, 
And similarly, Scripture has the human side. It was written in part by human authors. And, of course, they had limitations. And uh, uh, so, uh, given that, we ought to see that if there are limitations, those limitations, when it comes to Scripture, can uh, result in errors. Now, interestingly, he does not think that the limitations that Jesus had in his humanity resulted in Jesus committing any sin, um, but nonetheless, he, he still thinks that you can use the analogy to show that though there's a divine part to Christ and to Scripture, there's also a human part, and of course the human part in each case is going to have limitations, the rub is that the limitations to Christ in his humanity uh, are in no way sinful, uh, whereas ends think the limitations to Scripture result in some error. Now, um, he, he spends so much time on that, and I think people who respond to him, including myself, uh, spend so much time talking about whether this analogy uh, is a strict or a loose analogy, whether it works or doesn't work, um, that I think perhaps something gets overlooked. Uh, I actually think that uh, uh, Christ in his humanity and deity uh, are analogous to Scripture in its human and its divine part. So... Um, what, what uh, then would I say about this is ends right? Uh, no, because the problem arises when ends says that Scripture's human part does contain error. If you uh, take what Scripture teaches about its own inerrancy uh, and you're, you're looking to uphold that, uh, you should be able to say, yes, Scripture has a divine part and a human part, and because of the divine part, there are no errors either in the divine or the human part, and hence, you really do have a rather strict analogy between the divine and human part of Scripture and the divine and human part of Christ. Uh, the reason things don't turn out with that conclusion in what uh, ends right is that he's sure that the human part of Scripture involves error. Uh, so that ultimately that's where we would disagree with him. We, we, we might agree or disagree on whether uh, uh, the person of Christ and the nature of Scripture are analogous, uh, how analogous they are. Um, and I suppose you could, you could argue about that almost indefinitely, um, but the real point is that um, Enns is appealing to this analogy so that he can make the point of saying that uh, Christ's humanity and Scripture's humanity are not quite exactly analogous. They, they are roughly so, but they're, they're not uh, entirely so because he thinks there's errors in Scripture. So that's really... Uh, in my judgment, uh, what the basis of this whole line of argument that he presents is all about. 
would not personally uh, use uh, an argument for analogy or from analogy of this sort to try to support uh, either the deity of Christ uh, or the truthfulness and perfection of Scripture. Uh, I think Scripture is so clear uh, in what it does say about the deity and humanity of Christ, perfect deity and humanity, and perfect deity and human part in uh, regard to Scripture, that you don't need to try to argue anything uh, by means of analogy. But if one insists of arguing uh, uh, by analogy, I just think he has misunderstood the nature of Scripture. And uh, when you get that part right, then the analogy between uh, the incarnate Christ and the incarnate uh, written word actually does work. It doesn't break down. We've been discussing the inspiration of Scripture with John Feinberg, who is uh, a professor of biblical and systematic theology at Trinity. And uh, he's been helping us think through some of the difficult issues involved and reminding us of the importance of precision when it comes to our doctrine of inspiration and some of the dangers even that uh, can lie ahead if we are not careful to be faithful to how Scripture describes itself and how ultimately God himself has revealed who he is through the human authors. John, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. You are more than welcome, and thank you so much for um, this invitation and opportunity to discuss these really foundational issues. The Apostle Peter, in his second letter, says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This passage by uh, Peter really demonstrates that uh, the Holy Spirit isn't just coming along and deciding to uh, make good use of what the human authors wrote or, or adopt uh, the human writings. Uh, actually, he is carrying along these authors, much like uh, wind would carry along a, a ship on the ocean. And this is the Trinitarian work of God as he bre breathes out his word through the very human authors themselves. Well, in this podcast with John Feinberg, we have talked about this event, which is referred to, theolo referred to by theologians as the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, and we've used theological terms to do so, uh, words like concursive operation to describe how God breathes out his word through the Holy Spirit, and he does so in and, and, and through the human author, so that what they say is what God himself says. Uh, of course, he does this not in a way that is dictating to a secretary, but instead he does this sometimes in very ordinary ways, as he ensures that his word is spoken, but at the same time, the, the literary style and the historical context of the human human author is preserved. When we look at the Bible, it is one of the beauties of Scripture that not only do we have God's Word, 
so that we know who God is and what he has done. But we have his word in diverse forms, whether it's Peter writing or John or Paul in a book like Romans, or maybe it's an Old Testament author like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Moses himself through many different ways and many different styles and in uh, across eras of history we receive the word of god but we but we receive it in a mosaic of human form and this is the beauty of scripture that as the word of god is communicated to us it is preserving uh, the the human characteristics, but never at the expense of the divine author's intention or his God-breathed word itself. Uh, This is a reminder, as John has told us, that uh, the doctrine of inspiration naturally leads us to the doctrine of inerrancy, that because God himself is breathing out this word through the human author's This very word is perfect in its delivery, in its form. God is one who speaks clearly, one who speaks sufficiently, and one who speaks with the same type of perfection that is true of his very character itself. I would encourage you, if you are struggling with the doctrine of inspiration, to look to works like Feinberg's uh, book, Light in a Dark Place, to better understand uh, the, the inspiration of Scripture, especially in light of the many challenges to it today, challenges that call into question inspiration that might say, well, it's just a, the Bible's just a witness to Revelation. Feinberg reminds us that, no, it's, it's, it's that and much more. It's not just a witness. This is the very Word of God Himself. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.